may be seated. Glory, glory, glory. What a wonderful truth. He is risen from the dead. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. And we are the beneficiaries. Easter Sunday is always a joyous Sunday. It's a, it's a fun Sunday for a pastor. Uh, it's generally the highest attendance Sunday of the year, but it's also the highest day in the church calendar. It is the most important of all Sundays. Every Sunday is important, but Easter Sunday is the reason that we gather on Sundays. It is because of Easter and because of what happened, because of the history and the events in this morning's sermon text that we just read together, that we meet on Sundays, that we meet at all, because Christ has risen from the dead. Luke gives us in his 24th chapter a a historical record of the events of that first Sunday, that first Easter Sunday. Luke is a companion of Paul's, a, a medical doctor and a historian. He tells us in his gospel, the very first words of it in chapter one, he's writing it to a gentleman named Theophilus, and he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That is Luke's goal here, to write an orderly account, to write a history that tells us what exactly occurred. And he tells us that on that first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. And when they did, went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And of course, it's not just Luke who tells us this. We can Look in the other Gospels as well and find out that there was an empty tomb. It was, of course, the unanimous consensus of the early Christian church to give the witness that said that the tomb was empty. And it's not just Christian sources that tell us this. Biblical scholars that, that even aren't Christian and historians from other traditions also tell us the same thing, that there was a man named Jesus, that he did die on a Roman cross, that he was buried, and on the third day, the tomb was empty. So the question remains to us, well, well, why was the tomb empty? That's where there's some debate. I saw a thing the other day. There was a, a message that a group called the Freedom From Religion Foundation posted this message at the Wisconsin State Capitol. It it was a sign, and it said, Nobody died for our sins. Jesus Christ is a myth. Well, in one sense, I understand that they have their viewpoint that they don't believe that Jesus died for anybody's sins, and thus they see that as a myth, but... The fact of the matter is, even if you reject 
Jesus as God, if you reject him as Messiah, if you reject him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, historically, he did exist. He is not just a myth. All people who have studied the matter honestly, whether they accept Christ or not, agree that he existed. They agree that he died on a cross and that he was laid in a tomb. And so we need to consider this. He is not just a myth. What we need to understand, though, is did he really die for our sins? And did he really rise from the dead? You see, the two are inextricably linked together. His sacrificial death and his rising from the dead because he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh and the one who would pay for the sins of his people. In verse 6, it says, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. One commentator puts it this way, he says, he was making a claim, a claim to be the one in and through whom Israel's God was restoring his people. The claim was highly controversial. It pointed within his own teaching to a final clash with the authorities who would wish him dead and would act on that wish. Like any good Jew, Jesus believed that if he faced this in obedience to the divine plan, he would be vindicated. And the word for this is resurrection. You see, that's what Jesus' resurrection is. is It is his vindication, his validation that he was what he said he was and that he did what he said he did. It verified that he was legitimate. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then the rest doesn't really matter. Why should we take anything else of what he says for truth if this most important claim turned out to be untrue? You see, the the stakes are extraordinary. The resurrection is central to Christianity. It is foundation, even to the degree I would say, if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. I saw a a bishop in the Episcopal Church made a statement that said, if someone were to discover a tomb with Jesus' remains in it, the entire enterprise of the church wouldn't come crashing down. And I said, no, you are wrong. It actually would come crashing down because because it is that central. That that might be a sincere thought on the part of this bishop that it wouldn't all come crashing down. And, And you, as you sit in the pew right now, might agree with this bishop. You might sincerely believe that that is true, that the entire enterprise would not come crashing down, that the church would still have validity, it would still have purpose, it would still have meaning. But regardless of how sincere you are in that belief, I tell you this morning, you are sincerely wrong. And I say that not on my own authority, but on the authority of God's word. In 1 Corinthians 15, The Apostle Paul says these very words, beginning in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this hope or in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see what he says? If if there is no resurrection, if Christ did not bodily, physically rise from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, just chuck the whole thing. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This morning there's a hymn that some of you might have expected to sing, I suppose. Many churches around the world will be singing this hymn this morning. It's a hymn that we aren't singing. Uh, it's, it's the hymn, He Lives. Uh, it's probably a favorite of some of yours, I imagine. Uh, the final line of that hymn is the reason we're not singing it. It says, he lives, he lives, salvation to impart. That's a good part. We, we agree with that. But then the next line is this. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. You see, it, it appeals to personal experience. It appeals to the fact that I have a feeling in my heart that says he must be alive. Therefore, it must be true, or at least true for me. Because I have this feeling, and my feeling trumps the facts. But that's not the message of the scripture. That's not the message that we read from God's word. That's not the message that is spoken by apostles and angels. When apostles and angels speak, they say things like this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And why do you seek the living among the dead He is not here, but has risen. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives because the tomb was empty. He lives because 2,000 years ago people came there to see his dead and decaying corpse. And there was no corpse to be found. There are Theories given as to why this might be. Theories that people come up with because they don't want to accept this fact that Jesus might have indeed risen from the dead. And they don't want to accept the fact that that will for sure have certain consequences in their life. If they accept this fact, then he truly is who he says he is. He must be the king of their lives. And they must follow him. They don't like those consequences and so they come up with all kinds of reasons, all kinds of, all kinds of reasons they try to come up with as to why Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, why that must not be the case. One such person was Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the founding professors of Harvard Law School. And he set out to disprove the resurrection. That was a goal of his. He, he set to work and examined the documents as a legal mind. This is a, Founder of Harvard Law School. This is not some second-rate lawyer here. And he examined the evidence and looked at it so that he could point the holes. He could cross-examine the the testimony of the eyewitnesses, if you will. And when he did it, a strange thing happened. He determined that in examining the evidence, a legal scholar could only come to the conclusion that Christ indeed had risen from the dead. 
But this does not stop other people from coming up with other theories. We can't cover them all today. We don't have enough time. But for those who are unwilling to accept the idea of a resurrection, those who are unwilling to accept the consequences of such a realization, some of the ideas they come up with is the idea that maybe they didn't know where Jesus was actually buried, that there was an unknown tomb that that people who, when they were crucified, just got thrown into a mass grave, which was true, that often was the case, but it ignores the historical record of what happened in this case. We're told that, that there was a man, Joseph of Arimathea, who took the body and laid it in a private tomb, and we're told that both the Jews and the Romans put guards there so that they knew where this tomb was specifically and that the women came to that specific tomb knowing where it was. This is not a matter of not being able to find the right tomb. There's some who suggest that maybe it was just a giant fraud. Somebody had made things up. I'm sure we've all seen things like this that have come our way. You know, you might have gotten an email at some point. I've gotten this email uh, sometimes over the fax, sometimes an email umpteen times. But you get a message from a Nigerian prince who has millions of dollars that he is wanting to send you to help help get him out of the country and and he's going to take that money and all he needs all he needs is your bank account number and if you'll send that to him he'll transfer that money to your account and and we'll take care of things from there sign on the dotted line please <laughs> well it's obviously a fraud it's obviously a fraud and we can see through the fraud i hope because we can see what the person can gain by perpetrating that fraud. He gains access to your bank accounts and he can, he can withdraw funds from it. And depending on how much money you have, he can gain greatly from that. But consider the disciples. Consider the fact that, that they didn't expect the resurrection. That's not what they were thinking would happen. That's not what they were looking forward to beforehand. And then even more importantly, afterwards... They didn't get anything in exchange for it. They didn't get a benefit from perpetrating this fraud, if indeed it was a fraud. Actually, I take that back. They did get something. You know what they got? They got martyred. That's what they got. They got martyred for for holding to the truth of this. The first century Roman historian Tacitus put it this way. He says, their execution... He's speaking about early Christians in general here, but the apostles would have fallen into this group. Their execution was made into a game. They were covered with the skins of wild animals and torn to pieces by dogs. They were hung on crosses. They were burned, wrapped in flammable material, and set on fire to illuminate the night. This is what they gained by perpetrating this fraud, if indeed it was a fraud. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of hoax that I'm very interested in perpetrating. And yet, to a man, every one of the apostles went to their grave holding to the truth that Christ rose from the dead. And to a man, all of them but John were martyred this way, and John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he lived out the remainder of his days. Now, each one of these could have avoided these fates if only they had done one thing. If they had said, it is not true, I reject Christ. That's all they had to do. And yet not a single one of them did, because they knew it was not a fraud, it was not a hoax. 
It was the truth. Verifiable fact. It had occurred. Jesus had risen from the grave. Beyond this, if if it was a hoax, they sure made themselves look awfully bad. You know, if you're going to perpetrate a hoax and try to get a whole lot of people to follow you, you you probably don't want to lead with the card of, we are bumbling idiots. And yet, you look at the way the disciples acted, and time after time, they just don't get it. They mess up, they, they deny Christ, they doubt Christ and the resurrection, they They just don't get it. They don't follow him the way they should. If you were going to make up the story, you'd say, you know, we are strong, we're mighty, we're smart, we're good, you follow us. But they didn't. Even further, if you were going to make up a story, especially in the first century, you would not have women be the first eyewitnesses to the fact. Women in that time were not considered to be reliable witnesses. They were not considered to be able to give legal testimony And so if you were trying to build a case where you were making things up, that's not the way you would make up the story. And finally, if the tomb wasn't empty, if there was still a body in the tomb, all kinds of people could have pointed to that. The Romans could have squashed the Christian uprising. The Jews could have squashed the Christian uprising. All kinds of people could have put an end to the whole enterprise of Christianity right there by simply saying, come to the tomb, See the body. It is false. Well, some people have said per- perhaps what the issue is, is, is the disciples honestly believed that they had seen Christ Jesus risen from the dead. They honestly believed it, but it didn't really happen. It's called the hallucination theory. That somehow, somehow Christ appeared to the, uh, different disciples, one after another, after another, at different times in different places, at one time to more than 500 of them at the same time. Now, I think that we don't need to go very far to realize that this is not the more likely solution to the, to the problem here, that more than 500 people would simultaneously have the same hallucination especially when it's not something that was expected. It would be one thing if this was something that they figured was going to happen and they could all convince themselves that it had happened. But it's not what they expected. It's not that they were a bunch of rubes who were just easily gullible and would believe whatever was told to them. Look at the text again. They return from the tomb and and tell these things to the eleven. And what are we told? But these words seem to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Consider the example of Thomas, who later on this day, Jesus shows up to his disciples, but Thomas is not there. They finally believe, but then Thomas comes, and they say, hey, Tom, guess what? What the women said really is true. We saw Jesus. He says, I didn't believe them, and I don't believe you, unless I see them myself. These were not just a bunch of gullible rubes. As as one person put it, it was not enlightenment philosophers who were the first to figure out that when somebody died, they stayed dead. That was what the expectation was in this day as well. And they were fiercely monotheistic as Jews. And yet they came to worship Jesus as God. 
Well, perhaps then the body really was gone. Perhaps if we concede that fact, the body was gone, but it was gone by some other means than Jesus rising from the dead. Perhaps somebody stole the body, some would suggest. Perhaps it was the disciples that stole the body to perpetrate a hoax. Well, we've already covered the idea and the unlikeliness that they would perpetrate this hoax. Perhaps it was the, the women who overpowered the armed guard and then moved the stone away and stole the body and hid it. And No. Perhaps it was the Romans. No. Remember, we said that they had nothing to gain by making it seem as if Jesus had risen. Maybe the Jews? No. Likewise, nothing to gain by it. It makes no sense because there's nobody who could take the body who would take the body. Well, perhaps some say it was that Jesus never was dead in the first place. We call this the swoon theory that he wasn't really dead. He was mostly dead. And that as he lay in the tomb... The cool air resuscitated him somehow. And then he, after having been beaten to within an inch of death, just hopped up, removed the grave wrappings from himself and the hundred pounds of, of spices that he had been bound with and uh, just found the stone that was in front of the tomb, making it completely dark, and just pushed it out of the way, breaking the Roman seal that was placed on it, and then fought off the armed guards who had been placed there at penalty of losing their life, should they not complete their task. And then he walked seven miles to Emmaus, where he met up with a couple disciples. I had surgery once on my back, and after that surgery... It was three days before I could walk to even stand up. I had no energy, no strength. That was just after a surgery. Jesus was so close to death, so as to swoon, as they say. There's no way he could have done all these things. And that neglects the fact that the Romans were professional executioners. That ignores the fact that they verified that he died with a spear to his side. It ignores all logic, as does every other theory. You see, Jesus did die. And Jesus rose from the dead. That is the biblical explanation, and I would argue it is the explanation that makes the most sense. While they were perplexed about this, verse 4 tells us, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Just as he had prophesied. Just as he had said would happen. And here, now in his resurrection, he was vindicated. It proved he was who he said he was, and he had done what he had said he would do. Last week we made the point that a day is coming 
when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do so in joy, knowing that their sins are forgiven, washed clean by the blood of Christ Jesus. Others will do so in horror, knowing that their sons are unforgiven and there there is no one left to pay for their sins but themselves. This morning, I don't know which group you are in. I don't know if you are in that group that will rejoice on that day because you have trusted in Christ Jesus. You have been saved by grace through faith in him. For each and every one of us is a sinner. Each and every one of us deserves death. Each and every one of us deserves the wrath of God. But Christ Jesus died for our sins. He made payment for it. If we would only trust in him, we might have salvation, forgiveness, the righteousness of Christ applied to us, our record washed clean, paid in full by Christ. And this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ Jesus, I urge you to do so now. It's not too late. It is not too late to make that decision right now. One day it will be, but today it is not. Trust in Christ Jesus. Know his grace. Know his love. Know his payment for your sins. Know that he is a good and gracious God. What might be keeping you from doing it? It might be the belief that I don't need him at his payment for my sins. I'm basically good. I'm good enough without him. If that's the case, I assure you, you are not. You are not, and I am not, and there has never been another human being who has been good enough without him. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, and there is nothing we can add to our own salvation. It is all Christ. Or perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum. Perhaps you sit here this morning, And you think, God could never love me. You see, Pete, you you don't know what's in my past. You You don't know what's in my history. You don't know what kind of things I've done, what kind of thoughts I've had, what kind of actions I've taken. You you don't know the skeletons that are in my closet. You're right, I don't know the skeletons in your closet. But Jesus does. And he was willing to die for you. He was willing to die for you, skeletons and all. So great is his love. So great is his grace. There is no amount of sin that can can outrun the grace of God. And if you are one such person today who, who sits here doubting that you could be forgiven by God, then today's text is a wonderful passage for you. In the very last verse of it, verse 12, we read, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home, marveling at what happened.
Peter, the same Peter who Christ had taken with him to the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Peter, stay and watch with me while I pray, only to have Peter fall asleep multiple times. Peter, the same Peter who Christ had warned, said, be careful because you will deny me three times. Peter boldly said, no, I will never deny you. Before the night was finished, three times he had denied him, even to a little servant girl. He had failed miserably. He had sinned greatly. Surely he thought I could never be forgiven. I could never be made right. Where could be grace for me? And the report comes from the women. The tomb is empty. He has risen from the dead. They don't believe it, we're told. But Peter, it says, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. He had at least a little bit of hope in his heart that it might be true. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Enough to get him up out of his chair, to get him to head to that tomb, to get him to see if it might be true. If today you are doubting if you could be forgiven, if you are doubting if you could be saved, if you are doubting if God could love you, because perhaps you have failed miserably, perhaps you have not been the person you ought to have been. Well, my prayer for you this morning is this, that amidst the swirling winds of doubt in your heart, there might be a spark, a spark of hope that this message of Luke 24, this message of resurrection, a a spark of hope that it might possibly be true. And let that spark ignite you, that you rise like Peter and run to the tomb. Run to the tomb and find it empty. For Christ the Lord is risen. And your sins might be forgiven in him. Know that Jesus was indeed crucified. And know today he is risen indeed. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this great, amazing, unspeakable gift. This gift of Christ pouring out his blood for us, his body broken for us, that we might be forgiven, not because we deserved it, not because we are special in any way but because of your grace because you have showered it upon us and we pray that you would help us to know this truth in each of our hearts if we came here this morning knowing that I pray that we would know it more deeply and more truly because of what occurred here this morning and I pray that if we are those who do not know that that you would open the eyes of our heart that you would unclog our ears that we might hear your truth, that you might bring life where there is death. 
that we might know you and your grace. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please rise with me now as we sing about our risen King, hymn number 45, crown him 